Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers who sit around, drink, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's hosts are Chaz and Karen Brenchley, John Schmidt, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 81, Podcasting from Cobbler's Gulch. Welcome, Norman Leonard. You are the creative genius behind Cobbler's Gulch and the writer. So glad to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I had fun uh, when a mutual friend of ours introduced us going out and saying, what is Cobbler's Gulch and investigating it? I, I considered it for kids, but I think it's more YA than children's. What are your thoughts? Tell me about Cobbler's Gulch. What, well, before I did it, I was, um, I've been hustling screenplays in Hollywood for like the last 20 years. And I tend to write stuff that's quirky, for, for lack of a better term. And that's kind of been a dirty word in every Hollywood movie I've been in. If I say quirky, they immediately sort of... Wait, did you listen to our episode on the word quirky? <laughs> um, I, I've downloaded it. I haven't gotten to it yet. I just did the Christmas ghost one. I've got a whole little soapbox rant on quirky and how heroines can be quirky, but males are not supposed to be as quirky. And yet when we analyze it, all of our favorite male heroes are quirky. Yeah, I'm an equal opportunist when it comes to quirk, for sure. Um, <laughs> so with, I would get questions about, you know, my, my scripts and my projects, and I would often, they would say, who's this for? And I would say, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm supposed to have an audience in mind, and I know that. I, I teach creative writing, and I know you're supposed to have an audience in mind. But I tell the same stories to my, you know, to, to my kids that I tell to all of my friends. I don't censor myself, so... Well, there is precedence. I mean, the Lemony Snicket books, a series of unfortunate events. It starts off with the kids on the beach and their parents are dead. And then it just goes on downhill from there. And my niece so loved that book that she fought her way through dyslexia and other challenges and learned to read it because we weren't reading it to her fast enough. So between that and goosebumps, I would submit that kids are up for much darker subjects then I think many adults are comfortable with their kids being happy. I absolutely agree. And I, I love hearing that story. I, I shared this before I released it with a bunch of friends and I had a few of them say, I don't think my, you know, I think it, they, they thought it was great, but they were like, I don't think my kid is, I think this is going to scare the hell out of them. And then they actually did let their kid listen to it. And now there's kindergartners who are coming up to me and, and asking me about details that, that I don't remember writing. Like they're really into it. And, and it's everyone from kindergartners to like junior high kids are really into uh-huh. it. What were you, what age were you actually aiming at? Well, when you started? And that's you say, I, well, it started with uh, my daughter yeah. and she was two. I showed her the wizard of Oz against my wife's better wishes. <laughs> and she started, you know, she got really afraid of the witch and my wife yeah. was like, you better fix this. Uh-huh. And I, I wrote her this little nursery rhyme that goes, pixie dust, a summer's day, a rag doll with a crooked stitch. Listen closely when I say, be gone, you silly witch. And so, <laughs> oh, I love it. <clears throat> so she would say that before she went to bed Certainly. and she would feel better and she'd go to sleep. And then she would ask me questions about witches. And um, I teach creative writing. I also teach improv. Okay. And so we improved all this mythology about witches and goblins and monsters and it sort of developed over about four or five years with her. So it kind of grew up with her from like two till about six is when I finished writing it. And well, then- I think also, though, I don't 
parents die all the time in children's stories? Don't they have to be dead before the children can go do things? They don't have to be dead, but they do have to be out of the way. That's the fundamental tradition of children's fiction. The parents are not there to get in the way. Yeah, I, I all my favorite stuff when I think about, you know, there's never parents around. Exactly. If there, any, if there are any adults around, they're usually inept or abusive some way. Yes. Yes. And I, I love that too, because then the kids have to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, there was a movie, you guys all saw, I presume, it was a big hit of a movie called The Sandlot. Mm-hmm. And there weren't really adults in it. It was what happens when kids go off in a pack and just go play. Mm-hmm. And Stand By Me as well. That's kids walking okay. through the wood. These are famous kids who just, but it does. It involves getting out of the house and going away from adults and just being kids, which. Yeah. Well, and the, the other thing was I, I, my first, our first kid, our first child was a daughter. And I, I have no idea how to raise a, a, a young woman. Like I have no clue. Um, the only thing I'm really, I think, suited to do at all is, is tell stories, <laughs> tell stories. So, <laughs> I was thinking, what okay. what do I what skills do I want her to to have? You get her a chemistry set and a <laughs> yes, train exactly. set and Lincoln logs. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I agree. The problem with those is that she opens the chemistry set and says, "Now what?" And I'm like, "I, I, I don't have any fucking clue." <laughs> how how old is she now? She now she's twelve. She's smarter than I am already. We're pretty uh-huh. much when she was in fourth or fifth grade, and she wanted to start a business selling bracelets. <laughs> and I told her, I would give her, I was like, all right, I'll give you some money to get started to buy supplies and everything. And she kind of looked at me like, oh, I want to borrow money and pay it back. But I was like, well, that's how business works. <laughs> and I went to pick her up from school and she goes, hold on, I, I got to go. I got to go do something real quick. And she runs and she starts talking to this little girl who then starts talking to her own mom. And the mom pulls out some money and gives it to the little girl. The little girl gives it to my daughter. <laughs> my daughter. My daughter runs back and goes, I've got pre-orders, so I don't need to take out a loan from you anymore. Yes. <laughs> I love her. So she's a businesswoman. That's what Appar- I'm hearing. Apparently, yes. Um, you so got to start bringing her to your pitch meetings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I loved your description. You have goblins and gooslers and witzels, trolls, magogs, two-headed soil serpents, and it may or may not include a fairy. And I, and I liked that. Yeah, I liked a little bit of things that people know and expect and then some things that they don't. Like, what is a Witzel? Do we know yet? Uh, not really. Um, it, it's been mentioned, I think, in one of the episodes, and it'll come back later. Um, Do you know? Uh, I have an idea. Some of this stuff, um, when I, when I, as I've been adapting it for podcasts, it's been yeah. changing, sometimes depending on the performers that I have and what they're bringing to the table. Sure. So normally when I, when I write stuff like a script, a screenplay or something like that, it's, it's pretty concrete, but with the podcast and kind of adapting it on the fly, things have been a little bit more fluid, which is I like that. really fun. It's, yeah. um, it's like constantly being rewritten in a really, uh-huh. really collaborative sure. way, which is really cool. So you, hang on, you said, you said you were adapting it to a podcast. What form did it take originally? I wrote it as a novel. And okay. <clears throat> I'd mentioned that I'd, I'd been hustling screenplays to you. I don't know if that was yeah. before we started or not, but um, I just got tired of dealing with executives and suits and agents and managers. Yeah. I'm, I know there are good ones out there. I just haven't personally <laughs> had that <laughs> experience yet. And my wife thought it would be fun to just do something like absolutely just for the fun of it and no mm-hmm. reason else. Like just do it yourself, keep control and just have fun with it. Don't expect to become famous or make any money or just, go have fun. And sure. it was the best advice I've ever gotten. Excellent. Um, Joy so matters. 
<laughs> yeah, taking it out of away from the suits has been so fantastic. Yeah, um, have you published the novel or no, no, and that was part of the um, that was part of the frustration. I did the query letters. I went to yeah um, conventions. I, I had a manager and agent, uh-huh. and they're just always looking for reasons to say no before they're looking to say yes. And so okay, but you I, you, I, you haven't you you haven't published it yourself. No, no, I, I published a, a little children's book a while back with my wife about a firefly who can't light up his butt. Ah. Oh. oh, I love it. Kids will love that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun. Um. It's a one firefly meets another one can't light up his butt and the other one's butt is too light. It's basically oh. the, the story of my wife and me. Oh. <laughs> so we're not allowed to ask whose butt is too bright. We are not asking John. <laughs> you, well, you inquiring minds on the podcast. <laughs> you so where do we get wife and figure it out immediately? <laughs> yes, but that is unlikely. So you're going to have to give us a link to the book. I will definitely, I'll tell you what, if, um, I'll get your addresses. I'll send you guys copies. That would be great. Oh, oh, that would no, be No, I want to buy it. Mm-hmm. We've got to support our local writers. I also a- want to absolutely. A- I'm afraid whenever we have somebody on the podcast, I'm obliged to go out and buy at least a couple of things that they've done here. So that's very yeah. nice. Well, I'll tell you what, if you, if you did buy one, I'll, I'll send you some extra ones too, to give out to some kids. <laughs> Cause I just love the idea of kids reading it. It's a lot exactly. Give them, we've got, we've got friends with kids who would just love this stuff. So I want to be sure to have things for them and, and steer them down the right path. <laughs> it's important with other people's kids to make sure that you know we also we also think of people like your daughter why can't somebody decide at 12 if they want to be a writer and how do we encourage them to do that that's that i'm, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things i'm doing is developing like a companion podcast to go with this that are lesson plans one of the not one of the some of the feedback i got from agents when i was shopping this was that the vocabulary was too much for the age level. And my daughter read the book when she was, I think, seven, uh-huh. seven. And so I was like, I think that's nonsense. I mean, there's plenty of big words, but they're fun words to say. Like I try yeah. to keep them fun. And um, 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 I'm going to interrupt for a moment. It, yeah. It's famous in the UK. Uh, I don't know. Is Beatrix Potter known in America? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh good. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, but Beatrix Potter introduced the word soporific. Mm-hmm. in books aimed at six-year-olds and yeah. they love it absolutely it's yeah, so much that's, fun I mean, it's... that's the classic example of kids are not scared by long words and i think it's i think it comes from the insecurity of adults thinking like yes. I don't know that word is. Am I, yeah you know so i absolutely wanted to to make that part of it i wanted and i i knew if i did it the way a you know an agent or a publisher would want to shop it i'd have to kind of change a lot of those things and i didn't want to so the podcast thing just made a lot of sense for that reason what well yeah. it's also fun to say out loud some of these words it's like reading dr seuss the stars bellied sneetches have stars upon thars and you know those kinds of things um i think it would be fun and i i listened to your podcast and i loved the language i loved hearing this rather than reading it i i think it was just a lot of fun to hear the characters and and hear about them it's it's like stepping into another world and it's half in my mind for visualization but it's all there in the words and the voices and stuff i i really appreciated that yeah so i i just recently started taking music lessons and learning music theory and i've always tinkered on guitar but i'm starting to understand um, the theory, how music is its own kind of language. And I know that there's musicians who are just more, you know, they take to it easier. So it comes naturally to them. When I first started teaching, I would read out loud to some of my classes and I was, I was teaching freshman comp in college and I was encouraging this guy to read more. And he was like, yeah, but I don't, I don't read the way you read. 
And I think what he, he was saying is when I, when I read and I'm, you know, like the peaks and the valleys and I'm accentuating certain things. And I'm sure the way you all as writers probably read in a similar way. Like when you hear a word, you don't just hear the word, you hear all the connotations and all of the baggage that word brings. And so that was another thing with the podcast was bringing in all the sound effects and the music Mm -hmm. was a good way to, I think, hoping I'm doing is, is encouraging people, particularly young people to fall in love with language and to really hear it and feel it and see it and experience it beyond just the letters and just the words. That's the goal. That's really what I want. I've been on two sides of this one from, I wrote some YA short stories, actually middle grade short stories. And they did ask me to specifically go through and can you make the words a little bit simpler? Can you make the sentences shorter? And I did with a great burning pit of resentment inside of me. (laughs) A lot of it was because I went to World Fantasy Con and a couple other cons, and I've been to the talks about YA and middle-aged readers, and I kind of, being a smart kid, resented a lot of what was being said out there because the theory was, it. why does it all have to be written for the slowest person in the Mm -hmm. classroom? Oh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and that's what it felt like they were catering to rather than, you know, a lot of us learn words in context and then move on from there. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you look at the Jabberwocky poem and Lewis Carroll, he made things up, but he made you it up. And then he understood. I didn't know what Borogobes were, but or Mimsy, but. Yeah, just the yeah, but he, he did. I mean, Lewis Carroll did actually have definitions for all of these things. Yeah. Um, I mean, Brillig is that time between tea time and supper time. It's the twilight zone, um, and so on and so forth all the way through. But, yeah, I mean, the, the thing about catering to the slowest is that a team marches at the pace of the slowest. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to stay together, then... Uh, I am going to argue with you 100%. Are you? I am. Yeah. Because I'm a drum corps girl. I know. And I can tell you that you can give me any set of, sorry, I'm a musician. You can give me any set of competency of any way. People that can't clap in time to things and can't do anything. And they're like, okay, at the end of the summer, all I need them to be is perfect. Your squad has to be perfect. And it doesn't matter whether we got a 13-year-old that could barely play their trumpet or a 20-year-old that was ready to go and be a pro. They're in the same squad. And so everybody becomes perfect. And the truth is, if you make it something that a kid can be passionate about and enthusiastic about, they will fight past what other limitations other people's perceptions put on them. So that's what I liked about this was it starts off right. The Cobbler's Cult starts straight in with adult concepts. It starts off with <laughs> like kids as procurers and naughty things and goes on and it just expects that you go with that because I believe that if you have that expectation, kids will rise to meet or sink to meet whatever your expectations of them are. If you don't expect them to fail, they won't fail. Yeah. I've never done. had that happen. If I just expect them to succeed and you know, don't make it be rocket science immediately, they will rise to what you expect of them. You clearly didn't grow up with the kids I grew up with. <laughs> oh, I'm a- I'm going to interject here and pull us back out of educational theory. Yes. Okay, thank you. And ask a question about uh educational theory. You teach writing. Uh, Does 
the experience of writing this podcast and this level of improvisational creativity has it affected how you teach writing or can you talk a little about that? I think it's definitely um, my writing has been influenced from teaching those classes. So I think the way you word that question, it's sort of like the, the inverse, like the particularly with improv and, and, and gameplay and using that as a way to figure out where a story can go and, and using that as a way to solve story problems has been invaluable. So a lot of the things I do in improv, cause I teach an acting for animators class. A lot of things we do are, just trying to teach the idea that a, that a story is just a problem with a, a solution. It's that simple. And you can make a choice and it's going to take the story one way, or you can make a choice and it, and it takes a story in a different way. And as long as your choices are consistent with what's come before in terms of character plot, right? All of that kind of works itself out. And so helping students understand that has made like my storytelling a lot simpler. When I first started writing, I was trying to write double indemnity. I was trying to uh. write really plot heavy noir stuff. And as I've, you know, matured and gotten older and there's nothing, I, I, I love noir. I'm just not very good at it. I'm much better, <laughs> you know, really, you know, much better at a simple story for kids that, that is, is more playful and kind of imaginative. And it, so it's really influenced the, the content and also to a certain extent, like the, the audience I'm writing for as well. Being playful and improvisational seems to work really well for, for little kids for some reason. <laughs> um, that's another, another thing about, um, like I mentioned, the, the Hollywood thing, I, my, my storytelling t- tends to take really hard left turns in terms of tone. I'll throw in a fart joke one moment, and then the next moment, it's like a huge identity crisis for the character. And that comes a little bit from improv, too. And, and I think it, it makes sense to kids, right? Because kids, their whole day is nothing but hard left turns. They, you know, one minute they've got a balloon and they're on top of the world. The next minute they scratch their knee and it's, it's tragedy. And so that you actually just wrote a self-help book there of my (laughs) life in terms of hard left turns and improv. Yeah. (laughs) You can't sell it in America. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Then, so it, it's for some reason that it seems to be landing with kids really well. I think that those things that don't necessarily work in a Hollywood script really work well for, for kids. I like the narration that's first person, so that has that certain immediacy of this could be now, but you also did a flavor of world building in the style of the Hidden Almanac. I don't know if you'd listen to it. Haven't, but I'm writing that down. Tell me about it. Well, Hidden Almanac is a series of, it's usually a John that brings up Ursula Vernon, but it was my turn this time. They were five minutes long, and they came out three times a week. And you can actually even go look at transcripts of them. They're very simple and very short, but they're episodic storytelling. And it has Pastor Drum and Reverend Mord, and it creates a, okay, upon this day in the year of the lobster pope, and goes on. And the way that you threw that, you just throw things out there of like, oh, it was the year all of the birds fell down. Yeah, I, the mythology of that, the way um, there's an essay I've read called uh, The Telephone by Anwar Akawi, which is a great, it's a great essay. This uh, guy wanted to write about his um, village he grew up in for his daughters. And he, I think what you just said, the, the birds falling down, he has something similar where, where it's oranges. It was the day the oranges fell out of the sky. Right. And, um, and that I goes back that. to, I love uh, magical realism and Gabriel Garcia Marquez and the, the sort of matter of fact way that that really fascinating, fantastic things happen, and the way you can just shrug at it. 
I think is really funny. And I grew up in this town called Lake Elsinore. Have any of you ever heard of Lake Elsinore? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So hang on. Um, you either grew up in Denmark or there's a town in America called Elsinore. Lake Elsinore is in California. Yeah. What's funny is. Okay. I did not know that. It was definitely named after Hamlet. Yeah, of course it was. When we were kids, the story was that Cortez was sailing down the West Coast of what is now Southern California. Mm -hmm. And he had run out of fresh water. And so he pulled over in San Juan Capistrano and he sent this kid, a scout, to go look for fresh water. And he goes over the Ortega Mountains down into Lake Elsinore. And he comes back after three days and the kid is his skin is gray and his hair is like shock white and he's dying. Mm. And Cortez asks the boys as what, what did you see? Where did you go? And he says, it was hell senor. And then he dies. Oh. And then hell senor becomes el senor. <laughs> yeah. That is brilliant. Um, um, I thought, I thought Cortez landed on the East coast and marched across to the West coast. Probably. But again, this is Lake Elsinore where, yeah. where we tell stories like that. And he, he, um, don't ruin the story. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. That's the thing about where, where I grew up. It's like there's always these really tall tales. Yeah. And they tend to be very dark. Chaz, <laughs> the barge that takes away King Arthur also brings Cortez. It's just a different lake of different reeds. And the women <laughs> in the water here is crying. But moving on from that. <laughs> But in, in general, uh, we also had Sage and Savant pres- visit us, and they talked about doing Foley work and sound effects. But I look on your site, and you look like you go the – you don't have to make as many of your own. You've borrowed a bunch of them. Yeah, I, lo- I use a lot of Creative Commons. Um, there's a great website called freesound.org. And if you use them, I encourage you I, – I make donations to them, um, and I encourage anyone who uses them to, to do that because it's, it's all supported by, I think, somebody over in Spain – so anything you can do to contribute, but people upload all kinds of sound effects and there are certain licenses that you can use and it's made the world building mm-hmm. so much, um, so much more accessible. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a really great tool for me. So I use a lot there and then we, we create some as well. That, that part has been amazing. When I say what's we, the strange, strangest thing you ever had to create for, for the show so far? Ah, uh, the strangest thing. Probably, I have a Newfoundland uh, puppy, kind of a uh, big dog, 150 pounds. J.M. Berry, just a puppy. Had, yeah, <laughs> J.M. Berry had a similar one. So, yes. um, there's some snoring I've used that's that's from her, where Aww. I I take the snoring and then you can reverse it. You can take the sound and Ooh. you can run it backwards, and that makes for some pretty fun monster sounds. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sure, that's Nifty. brilliant. Yeah, so that that's been fun. I've, a lot of the um, the actors that I've worked with have provided a lot of sounds as well, and that's been super super useful and and a really fun part of the writing process that I don't normally get to participate in. Okay, I have a commercial question. Yeah, do you pay your actors? So I for for my actors, um, I have a contract with with them yeah. uh, where in the in the really wonderful problem where this thing starts making money, they're the mm. first people that will get paid. Excellent. I was in. I was. I mean, the the follow up question obviously was, how do you monetize this if you want to monetize this at all? Um, I haven't put a lot into that yet. I'm thinking, like for instance, right now we have merch for sale on the on the storefront, right. store 
and it's it's basically I'm selling that at cost. It's just to kind mm-hmm. of get things out there. Yeah. Um, I'm doing lesson plans, just kind of building the audience. And I'm I have a long term plan for that yet, but I still haven't figured it out. I need to bring <laughs> my daughter in to, to help me out with yeah. the making yes. part. So I'm not exactly sure how that's going to go yet. I'm I'm still figuring out. I'm I really am when it comes to like my my constitution. I'm 99.9% creative, and the business side of things just escapes me. So. Hopefully, oh, hello. I'll figure that out. <laughs> well, we may be brothers. So I have an idea. If you if you get pre-orders, you don't need to take a loan. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, I can I can just feel my daughter slapping in the back of my head. <laughs> I was I was just contemplating. I don't know where all you advertise on it, but we had an episode with some twenty uh, somethings on who were talking about they find a lot of things to look at on Twitch and yes. Sites that are not necessarily, let's just say, those of us that are over 40 inhabit these sites, but the kids have completely different sites. So, And YouTube. YouTube is, a, is where the kids go, and, the, and they just oh. have their own channels. And, yeah. And yeah, we have started, get paid. Started, started putting all of the, um, the episodes on YouTube, and that's part of the, to make things easier for, for teachers, if I'm going to have teachers teach this in class. That'll make it a little bit more accessible for them. They don't have to teach kids how to download podcasts and whatnot. So, oh, kids know how to download podcasts. Come on, <laughs> you. Oh, I I agree. Most of them do. I've had some that have never even heard of a podcast, which is like baffling really? to me. But yeah, for the most part, I think most people do. But yes. we are going to YouTube. Uh, real quick, going back to the to the actor thing, you were asking if I paid the actors. Yeah. What's funny when when I first was trying to cast this thing, I put out a casting notice, and it was like. I'm making a fantasy adventure podcast mm-hmm. and I basically, basically it was crickets. Nobody, nobody bit. Mm. And then I was thinking about the writing and I thought, well, I should probably make the casting notice match the writing. In mm-hmm. ah. Well, I put up a casting notice that said, I I'm looking for, for voice artists who would be delighted by the prospect of scaring the shit out of children <laughs> as witches and goblins. <laughs> And then I had I mean, <laughs> tons of talent. It was That's fantastic. beautiful. Yeah, I love it. Really, really great. And that got them to read, read the script and it got people on board. And, mm-hmm. and the voice artists I've had are just so wonderful. I'm so proud of the work that they're doing. Yeah, they're good. Really, they're good. really fun. Yeah. There, I have one guy named Matt Regan who he plays over a dozen characters. I mean, just, just a really amazing stuff. Yeah. I saw a thing of Nancy Cartwright of Simpson fame who's doing a master class on how to get into voice work and how she, you know, breaks into voice work and think about it. So for those of you out there who may be listening that think I want to be on Cobbler's Gulch, uh, should they reach out to you and audition? Sure. Happy. I'd happy. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I figured Chaz was just asking because I just had him read part of my gingerbread elf story. So now he's looking for royalties. <laughs> oh, hello. <laughs> yeah. My uh, both my kids are in it, and my son is saying something similar. He keeps asking, yep. "I don't want to get paid for this." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. raise my allowance, Dad. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I would I would be happy because uh, right now the there's I've recorded the first season and there's 52 episodes total. Mm-hmm. Nice. And then there's a plan. We'll see if it if it unfolds like this. But there's a plan for. Uh, 12 seasons beyond this one. Oh, wow. wow. That is thinking ahead. I yeah. applaud you, sir. If you need an English villainous voice, I have one. <laughs> I'm just saying. He's actually done this before. So. 
Um, and that's been that's been fun too because I'm I'm bending genres. I'm also not yep. necessarily tied to just a certain accent or just a certain aesthetic. Exactly. Yeah, which is fun. I, I love the idea of having like a, a United Nations of voice artists. <laughs> Absolutely. And so there are how many episodes can people find when they go out there and look on any of the links? Like we'll put out the Apple Podcast links and some of the others. Oh, great. Um, so right now there are eight episodes available now, plus a teaser and a trailer on all the major platforms, Apple, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify. Marvelous. Um, yeah. And um, we will also, put, we'll put some links out there. I think I have your podcasts and Spotify and you have a Facebook page too, correct? Facebook and an Instagram. Can they follow you on Twitter or anything? Um, there, we do have a Twitter handle. I'm um, still trying to figure out how to use Twitter in a way that makes sense, but uh, we do have it. Ask your cool. children. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I need to hire my daughter as just the person in charge, per, like, yep. period. <laughs> Consulting. Fantastic. So four seasons you foresee for us, we'll be able to enjoy Cobbler's Gulch? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So well, Excellent. on that note, just real quick, the, the first season's about a witch and there are... 13 witches in a coven. And this is the first. Ah, yeah. Helps cool. to organize it in your mind. Yeah. Excellent. Ah. Well, in your own words, uh, monsters, scoundrels, and good for nothing should not underestimate brokenhearted orphans. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we will put links to your podcast and the other interesting things we mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. Norman, if somebody has an email question for you, do you mind terribly answering it for them? Not at all. Orphanage at cobblersgulch.com. Fantastic. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. As we fly merrily through these midwinter holidays, I want to remind you all to try to think kindly about everybody you meet for the next few weeks. We're so close to done with 2020. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. Our, main, our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our podcast sponsor is Eternally Jackal Designs, helping you all buy cool WDC swag to wear and impress your friends. And here's a shout out to the bean scene in Sunnyvale as well. And hey... Thanks so much for listening.